Hi everyone and welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics. We are your hosts, Eleanor Watson and Olivia Grant, two PhD students in the genomics group at the University of Essex. Join us as we speak to researchers in the field about their current research and their journey into genomics. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by Biobox Analytics. Do you work with human or mouse sequencing data? Biobox Analytics offers end-to-end data analytics for scientists and clinicians working with next-generation sequencing data. Leverage no-code bioinformatic pipelines, generate publication-ready plots at the click of a button, and consolidate insights from popular public databases. Sign up for the waitlist now and be the first to gain early access to your free Biobox account at biobox.io. Okay, so welcome back, everyone. I'm not actually sure what episode number this is. I think it might actually be 17 or 18. I think it's 18, you know, uh, 18. Yes, I'm sure it's 18. Which, wow. I'm impressed with us. I think we're doing, I think that's, that's quite a lot of episodes. Um, so yeah, welcome back to the genomics lab. Um, and we're actually very privileged to have Liv with us this week because pretty busy this week, aren't you Liv? Um, preparing your presentation for us for Wednesday, which is actually today by the time you listen to this. By the time you listen to literally this episode, the moment this is out, I will be starting my presentation. Starting your presentation. Yes. Um, are you excited to hear it, Ellie? So this I is actually about. I'm not going to say exactly what it is because it is a side project that I've been working on for a while. Um, but we'll definitely be doing a podcast on it soon when we it's will. out. I'll be um, grilling on all the questions. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'll, I'll be really excited for that actually. Um, but yeah, it's a side project that I've been working on, and it's my first time presenting it. Um, I don't feel quite prepared because it's been quite a squeeze to get it in. Yeah. Because it was quite last minute. But that's do absolutely the first, fine. Do you remember our first year where oh, we'd do yeah. presentations and we'd rehearse for about three weeks straight beforehand and we'd practice with each other and mm-hmm. we'd ask each other questions and now it's like... <laughs> I'm going to prepare it probably tomorrow evening, which is really bad. But I actually admittedly I still prepare my presentations well in advance normally and I normally rehearse them religiously before I do them so if it is an absolute shambles on Wednesday you know why but it won't be it won't be a shambles it will be amazing like always Liv isn't is an amazing presenter and if you don't already (laughs) plugging you here if you don't already follow her on Instagram (laughs) you need to go and follow her because her presentation tips are amazing and we oh God, I feel like a guest. yeah I know why have I made you, you actually a guest like <laughs> you better big me up next week <laughs> um but yeah so that's our week nothing exciting has happened at all has Just it busy. really lots of work very busy um, um how is your your work going my work is going quite well I've kind of got three little projects on the go at the minute and one of them is going really well one of them is going medium and the other one's going pretty badly it's always like that isn't it there's always and like the one that's going really well you can't help but spend all of your time on yeah I it's spend bad, 95% of my day on the one that's going well yeah because if I spend any longer on the other ones I just want to tear all my hair out mm-hmm. um but yeah no at least it's nice to have one thing that's going okay <laughs> Sorry, At least it's not all going rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, so yeah, we've got a very exciting guest today. Um, we're very, very much looking forward to today's episode. Yeah, um, it's a really good one. We really say that about literally all of them. Like all of them, we're like exciting guest, good yeah. episode. But what can well, we say? All of our guests are exciting, and all of our episodes are great. Only the best for the genomics lab. <laughs> <laughs> But we are, Um, let's maybe just say what we're discussing today. We're discussing cancer epigenetics. We are. And also one of Myron's recent publications in Nature Communications about how a gene called YBX1 um, fine-tuned polychrome repressive complex 2 activities in embryonic brain development. I have literally memorized that title. 
Look at me, you go. Oh, goodness. I'm Myra, if you're listening. Myra. I'm sorry. Number I, one. It's quite embarrassing that I literally remember that word by word. Myra's definitely <laughs> listening. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, really, really great to talk to Myron today. So shall we let's go and chat to Myron? <laughs> Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Genomics Lab. Today we are speaking to Dr Myron Evans from St Jude's Children's Research Hospital which I believe is in Tennessee and Myron is going to correct me if I'm wrong here. Nope that is right it's in Memphis Tennessee. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing so thanks for joining us today appreciate you being here and giving up your time to come and speak to us. Absolutely. I'm super looking forward to this conversation, you guys. Amazing. So are we. Me and Ellie are hoping to learn a lot today. Um, we are, definitely. Hopefully touching on a subject that we haven't so far touched on, really. Um, huh? Also a subject that me and Ellie probably admittedly don't know too much about. So hopefully we're going to learn a lot today <laughs> as well. Just always didn't know that much about it when I started. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that much about it when I started either, so... <laughs> It's exciting but scary when we're talking to people <laughs> about something that neither of us know much about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. Um, okay, so do you want to start off just giving us like a an, a brief introduction to you and your academic background and sort of your career up until this point? Yeah, uh, so my name is Myron Evans. Uh, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital um, in Mark Hatley's lab. Um, I actually just started a second postdoc um, as I'm on my way sort of out of my postdoctoral fellowship and into my real academic career. Um, and so in the Hatley lab, we study rhabdomyosarcoma, which is a pediatric soft tissue sarcoma. Um, and we're, I'm using a lot of the epigenetics tools that I picked up in my first postdoc to really understand uh, the developmental cell of origin and developmental trajectories for these tumors. Um, and then in my first postdoc, which was also at St. Jude, um, literally three floors downstairs, um, I studied the epigenetics of nervous system development. Uh, so really understanding how the mammalian nervous system develops and what um, pathways control uh, that development, how um, we sort of get a broad range of different cell types in the central nervous system that are all developed from one sort of central ner- uh, neural stem cell. Okay. Um, and then prior to that, I was a graduate student at uh, Duke University. Um, and it was a big shift for me when I got to St. Jude. So my PhD is actually in cancer biology. Um, and so I studied breast cancer and developed therapeutics for that. Um, and, but I was in a development stem cell biology program. And so I was on a training grant for that. And then my undergraduate, I was at Florida International and I studied developmental biology there. So I sort of bounced back and forth between development and cancer biology, pretty much my entire, can- my entire career. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So yeah, like you said, it's quite different. Your obviously your the work that you're doing now to your PhD. What sort of made you want to make that change? Yeah. So when I was finishing grad school, I think epigenetics was sort of like everybody was talking about it. It was a hot new field, um, and a mentor of mine was like, "Listen, I'm not telling you what you should do when you when you decide where you want to go, but maybe you might want to jump into something cool." Um, like epigenetics or CRISPR, which was the other hot ticket item at the time. Um, And we had tried a few CRISPR experiments and I was like, I don't understand this at all. Like, this is a bad idea for me to go in as a postdoc into something that I really don't get. And I was like, all right, I'll try epigenetics. It makes a little bit more sense to me. Um, And so I joined um, a really relatively new lab. I think my PI had been there maybe three years when I started. And so she was still in the lab pretty much full time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a lot easier for me to sort of pick up how to do the techniques and learn the lingo and really understand when people say certain terms in epigenetics. I, when we first started, I was like, what, what, who, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, and now I feel like I've got a pretty good grasp. We're probably still not the best, but, you know, I'm working towards, you know, being one of the, hopefully being one of the experts in the field one day. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Is that your imposter syndrome talking? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's yeah, and it, that does not go away. Like I would have thought it did. Like I'm on the academic job market now, and I was like, oh, this will go away. I'm ready to be my own PI. And every time I do an interview, I'm like, uh, <laughs> why are you guys interviewing me? You should definitely be talking to somebody else from another school who's probably oh, way better than I am. Well, that's no. just not true, though. That's no. not true. So I'm, uh, I've just got a quick question, actually, which yep. is, I'm kind of fascinated by, so you're doing your 
postdoc, but it's at a hospital. Can you kind of explain a little bit how that works? Because that's a concept that I've not really come across before. Yeah, um, so St. Jude, um, even though it's, it's, it is technically a hospital, we really sort of think of it as a research institute. It's a research hospital. And so it was built um, really to right. um, okay. do, the, do the research yeah. and run clinical trials for kids. And so, yes, we see patients, but really all of the patients that we see have to be on a clinical trial. So they're, we're, they're informing the research, we're utilizing the research to inform better treatments for them sort of at the same time. And then um, as the research endeavor has grown, we've really branched out to doing more of what I would consider more basic science. Um, it's still sort of with the translational tone. So like, I obviously work on cancer, uh, but I study the developmental origins. Like that's not, I'm not developing new drugs or figuring out new treatments, um, but yeah. somebody else could take that data or that research and then move it to maybe say, oh, well, now we know what the cell of origin is. Now we have a better idea of what we can do to target it, but that's not specifically what my lab does. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's it's uh, a research-based facility, but you've got kind of actual patients. You're not using model organisms or anything. You've got patients enrolled on clinical trials. Yeah. So, and then we do, we do still do model organism work. So uh, most of the labs, most of the labs don't really ever see patient data. So like my lab, we don't, we just started working with patient data. Um, okay. And then in my first postdoc, I never, we never really worked with patients because the development of the nervous system is sort of a standard procedure. It's not really yeah. something that you're looking for in terms of patients. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it is. It's different, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We've not spoken to anyone that's done anything like that before. So yeah, oh, that's really awesome. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we just started our own graduate school. So they're trying to sort of turn it into, I think, more of a, a university feeling. Um, right. So we've got grad students now and, and it's, it's been a really good endeavor. Yeah, I was just about to ask, actually, like if you if there's any sort of like PhD students at all that work um, in, in your labs as well. Yeah, so we have so before I think the grad school has been open for maybe three years now. And so before that, we would have graduate students from all over the world um, come to St. Jude. And so we have a really good friend of mine that's actually just got, he just finished his PhD and he was from uh, UCL, um, University College London. And so, and then we have people from obviously in the States that just come to St. Jude because they want to work with um, some of the scientists here. Um, and then a few years ago, they decided, you know, we'll build our own grad school and we'll train them the way that we want to train the grad students. And so we graduated our first two students last year I believe um, okay. and then the rest the rest of that class is sort of hopefully finishing up so we've got two grad students in my lab and one's coming up on his qualifying exam in a week or so and then we have mm -hmm. one that um, she's probably maybe like a year or so out from finishing. Mm -hmm. Right cool the dreaded qualifying exam. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't envy him for doing that. Yeah no. I'm glad ours is over. <laughs> yeah definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so do you want to maybe um, just give like a, a brief overview of sort of the research um, that you do and then also like more widely what your lab does? Yeah, um, and so in this particular postdoc, um, I have been using uh, single cell genomics techniques um, to not only understand the developmental origins of rhabdomyosarcoma. So for a long time, it's been thought that because rhabdomyosarcoma cells sort of resemble immature muscle, um, that those tumors must come from musculature. Um, and uh, my lab, uh, before I joined the lab, uh, Mark, my PI, developed this really outstanding model where he could actually show that we can make a, a rhabdomyosarcoma in mice from, a, from an endothelial cell or from an endothelial progenitor. Um, and so we've been really working to try to understand how does an endothelial progenitor go from a cell that should look like vasculature to something that looks like muscle but doesn't can't get all the way to the end of the pathway and can't actually become muscle right okay um, and so really yeah so we know that has to do a lot with epigenetics so when i was looking for a second postdoc mark i went to mark and i said hey i'd love to work for you you know I, i've known him for years he's a fantastic mentor he's won mentor of the year award at st jude um and i didn't really know what he was looking for and he was like hey we've got this epigenetic stuff and we have no idea what we're doing we need your help and i was like i'm in let's do it let's like get in the lab and I'm going to learn about rhabdomyosarcoma, which has been an interesting journey for me because it's nothing I've ever looked at before. And so it's uh, mm -hmm. me learning about another cancer type, um, which has been interesting. It's I picked it up. I want to say I picked it up quickly. <laughs> I'm sure everybody. Sure, the like, no. imposter syndrome again. 
There it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quickly. Um, yeah. So can I ask a, a, just a quick question? Um, yeah. I hope I pronounced this correctly. So you were saying, um, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, something sarcoma? <laughs> Rhabdomyosarcoma. That's that. So, um, yeah. this, sorry, this is a really stupid question. What is that? I've never heard yeah, of that before. So yeah, so it's a pediatric soft tissue tumor. Um, and it's characterized by these rhabdoid cells, these little round blue cells. Um, mm -hmm. And so, it, it, like I said, it obviously properly affects kids. There have been, I think there have been a few cases of adults with rhabdomyosarcoma. Mm -hmm. um, and so there has been a lot of sort of speculation about, you know, where does it, like I said, where does it come from? Because it looks like muscle um, by genetics, but it, it's not, and it can't, you can't do um, what other people have done in like, let's say leukemia, where they can do differentiation therapy, right? So leukemic cells are blood cells that don't make it all the way to the end of the pathway. And so yeah. they've designed drugs that sort of push them all the way. Um, you, for years, we've been trying to do that with rhabdomyosarcoma, and you can't. And our thought in the lab is, well, that's because those cells can't become muscle. They were never supposed to become muscle, but they just mm -hmm. sort of look like it. Um, yeah. And so we we're trying to understand, you know, can we, you know, ablate them from here? How do they sort of transdifferentiate if that's if that's what we think it is from endothelial progenitors or endothelial cells to this more muscular muscle muscle looking cell mm -hmm. um and so if we can understand that we may be able to say okay maybe we can't differentiate them towards muscle but we can maybe push them towards a different lineage that would be non-toxic or, or would or you know post-mitotic so they wouldn't grow as fast and, and mm -hmm. we could cure uh, kids that way mm -hmm. Well, that's really interesting. So can I just ask uh, how how rare or common is this particular type of cancer in children? That is a great question. I should know this off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> As it, it doesn't have to be exact figure, but is it is it a fairly commonly seen cancer or is it quite rare? Because obviously me and Liv haven't really heard of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's not it's not super rare. I wouldn't say it's it's um, vast. Um, common um, it accounts for about less I think it's less than 10% of all childhood cancers um, right, but okay. it is the most common it is the most common the most common type of soft tissue sarcoma so there are other sarcomas yeah. that kids can get um, but this one's the most common um, but that's out of all of the cancers that kids yeah. get it's still a yeah. really really low percentage yeah of course because there's so many types but it's still a, a pretty big problem yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And there's and there's some different types of rhabdomyosarcoma, um, and so there's you know half of the, you know half of the people that study that study the one type, the other half of the people study um, the other type of rhabdomyosarcoma, and then our lab sort of straddles the line, and we've decided well we can't you know we got to be we got to be in the field as much as we can, so we really study both subtypes at the same time. Okay. So is there what is the difference between the two different subtypes then? Yeah, and so one subtype is called embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, um, and that we, we refer to it also as fusion negative, um, and it's called fusion negative because the other subtype, alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, um, is almost exquisitely characterized by fusions of um, two genes, either PAX3 or PAX7, uh, with another gene called FOXO1. Um, and there's been a, uh, some papers that have come out recently that show other other fusions that they've seen in some patients. But for the most part, we broadly think of it as PAX3 or PAX7 fuses, other gene, and that leads to a transactivation event where this gene that should not be turned on, FOXO1, is, is rapidly activated um, in these tumors. And then that drives this alveolar um, this alveolar phenotype. And that tends to more commonly be seen in, in you know, the large muscle um, embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma is, is the word embryo would make you think it's more commonly seen in younger kids and yeah. we almost always see it in the head and neck region sometimes in the bladder um, or in the sex organs okay and so uh you talked about how different places obviously tend to study one or the other how yeah. much of a challenge is it uh kind of studying the interplay between the two like obviously if you're studying both at the same time what kind of challenges does that bring yeah so our lab sort of for the most part we for the most part the lab studies embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma okay. um there are our grad student the, the more senior graduate student has a project looking at this fusion positive variant so one of the things that we're really trying to understand is um is the differentiation block that we see sort of for these 
this embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma where we um, activate the hedgehog pathway in, the, in these um, endothelial progenitors and they turn into these muscle-looking cells. Yeah. Um, it's that same differentiation block seen in, in alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma. And so uh, she's been using the PAX3 FOX01 fusion, um, which drives which drives this alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma type. And so are, what are the differences between, between that and the embryonal? What are the similarities? What's different between PAX3 FOX01 or PAX7 FOX01? Um, why do they show up in different parts of the body? Mm -hmm. um, and sort of what's special, what's special about those two things. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey for me, especially moving from, again, being heavy in development and then the work I'm planning on doing after I leave this lab is not in rhabdomyosarcoma <laughs> at all. Um, oh, really? <laughs> so it's, it's, I'm picking up, you know, another a set, of, a set of skills and learning about another disease. Um, mm -hmm. But I'll be in Pete's cancer regardless. And so it's, um, it's nice to see, you know, what other diseases affect kids. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what, what are you, what are you sort of hoping to, to do next and research next then? Yeah. So my interest is, has been since I was a, since I like, I mean, I guess not a kid, since I was a younger uh, academic, um, has always been in brain tumors. Um, okay. And so uh, the paper that I published last year um, that showed this transcription factor that affects uh, the epigenetic regulation um, in the central nervous system also is misregulated in a number of brain tumors. Um, and so my lab, when it opens, and we'll see where that is, um, we'll be studying uh, medulloblastoma, uh, which is a, a brain tumor, um, a pediatric brain tumor. Um, it's the most common um, brain tumor uh, for, that kids get. Um, and even though, again, much like rhabdo, it's still rare um, out of all of the brain tumors, it's the most common. Out of all the tumors, it's still really rare, um, and it's and it's pretty. It's 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 much like rhabdo. It's got four subgroups, and and so we'll be focusing hopefully on maybe one or two of those subgroups. But that same transcription factor is, is misregulated in all in all medulloblastoma patients for the most part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, going back to sort of the epigenetics part. Yeah. What sort of epigenetic modifications um, do you look at? Yeah, and so I originally was focused on um, uh, methylation of lysine 27 on histone H3 or H3K27 methylation. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a repressive mark. And so we, we tend to see that in regions of the genome where genes are silenced. Um, so mm -hmm. whether that be at an enhancer or at a promoter um, for a gene, but it tends to almost always signify a gene repression. Um, and the epigenetic modifier that actually places the mark, one of the big questions in the field is, how does it know where to go? Um, yeah. It, you know, obviously you have multiple cell types and they can be really adjacent to each other and they have to have different um, gene expression. And so how does it know in this cell to turn off the expression of, of gene X, but in the adjacent cell to not turn off expression for gene X mm -hmm. um, and allow it yeah. to be expressed? And so that's really what we were interested in in the central nervous system. Um, and we think we identified, I mean, we obviously published it, we think we've identified something that really regulates it, at least in that particular system. Um, and so now I'm really interested in understanding, does it do that um, in later development? And does it also do that? Does it have that same process in cancer? Mm -hmm. I think cancer in, um, epigenetics is so interesting. Admittedly, although I study epigenetics, I actually don't know too much about um, cancer epigenetics. So let me ask a silly question, which is, I probably already know the answer to it, but I'm interested anyway. So obviously you have many different types of cancer, right? Do sort of, um, does epigenetics play a similar role in all cancers or is it very unique to the type of cancer that you're looking at? Yeah, so it can be super unique to the kind of cancer you're looking at. And it can also be really unique to the cell of origin. So even if you said lung cancer, it depends mm -hmm. on whether the cancer comes from, an well, depending on what cell type the, the cancer comes from in the lung. Um, and so one of the things that we've, we've seen is that epigenetic modifiers can act as both tumor suppressors in some tumors, uh, but they can also act as oncogenes in other tumors. And it can be the same thing, right? Like you could delete it. You could delete an epigenetic modifier um, in, in two different tumor types. And in one, it makes the tumor grow way faster. And the other one, it makes, it makes the tumor stop growing. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the reasons that I sort of like to straddle the line between development and cancer biology is that we, we think that we can understand a lot more about um, what roles these modifiers are playing in cancer if we understand what they were originally doing in the cells that they were from. So if it's 
yeah. required to be there for the normal cell. Chances are you would think um, if you delete it, it's most likely going to be, um, you would think maybe it's possibly a tumor suppressor, but you can't really judge that sort of upfront. Um, but if you really understand exactly what it's doing in the normal cell, maybe we can start better treating patients. Um, and that's been really well seen in Medjolo. And so a paper from my other mentor um, recently showed that uh, deletion of EZH2, which is the epigenetic modifier that actually places the H3K27 uh, methylation. Um, so it was a really cool paper for me to sort of uh, see them work on. Um, is actually a tumor suppressor. So if you delete EDH2 in their model, the tumors actually grow way faster. Um, and that's been sort of in opposition to what's been seen by others that have done in vitro testing of EDH2 inhibitors. And so they said, oh no, we put EDH2 inhibitors on the tumor, the tumor cells die. And we were like, mm, no, they grow faster if we delete it. Um, and so there's a little bit of sort of a uh, okay, well, who, you know, it, which one is right? Is it maybe possibly the inhibitor may be off target um, a little bit, or is it that inhibiting the protein but not actually getting rid of it is, has a different effect than completely abolishing the protein expression? Um, and so that's, that's something that we'll have to definitely sort of figure out, but it, it leads caution to saying like, oh yeah, you know, we use these H2 inhibitors in clinic or in the lab, we should throw them in patients in clinic. Well, maybe that's not the best thing to do. And so that's why we go through, you know, rounds and rounds and rounds of testing uh, new drugs. Yeah, okay. So what sort of um, what sort of drugs are you looking at to target these um, epigenetic changes that you see in these cancers then? Yeah, so there can be, it can sort of depend on what, which epigenetic um, modification you're interested in. So there's like, my lab is probably gonna focus more on this PRC2 or H3K27 trimethylation modification. Um, but there are other people that have said, you know, we've seen evidence for altered acetylation. So we wanna use HDACs or um, histone deacetylase um, drugs. And so I think it's really just gonna have some deacetylase inhibitors. And so it's gonna be really just interesting to see sort of who gets where in, in, in their research. And it may be the case that, you know, depending on which models we use, um, drugs might work completely differently and then we go to patients and it, and it may only be useful for a very small subset of patients that their tumor looks exactly like the model that we use. Yeah. Um, and so that's been, you know, one of the big issues with using um, model organisms in some cases that to make a tumor in a model organism, sometimes you have to add extra um, genetic aberrations just to get the tumor to form. And those extra genetic aberrations obviously will affect the downstream genetics and then which drugs will work and then so you can't immediately go back and use it in a patient. Um, and so we've, um, and so Martine Ritzel, my, my other mentor has really developed this really elegant and beautiful um, PDX database for us to use for medulloblastoma and they published that I think last year. And so we'll be able to say, okay, we have mouse models of, of medulla, we tested a drug, oh, it works. Now we're gonna test it on an actual human tissue um, and mm -hmm. human cells um, in mice still. Um, and does it work there? And if that works, then then that gives us a better opportunity to say, eh, it'll probably work in patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Cool. It's so cool, isn't it? Yeah, it's really cool. Um, just going back to something that you said a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned about how you sometimes like to take the approach of looking at how these sort of pathways and how, for example, you know, like, normal development occurs and how that could mm -hmm. potentially help you understand um, these cancers a little bit better. You then sort of went on to, um, you just sort of briefly mentioned your um, recent publication in Nature Communications, um, looking yeah. at um, polychromoplastive complex two in embryonic brain development. Could we perhaps discuss a little bit about that paper? Because I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, if maybe you absolutely. could just, start off with um sort of the bigger picture of that paper so what what made you want to do that research yeah and so um as i sort of mentioned one of the one of the big questions in the field of, of prc2 biology and, and probably really epigenetics um for for writers sometimes has been how do they know where to go in the genome um and so for a long time it's sort of for prc2 specifically it's sort of been thought that you know prc2 may interact with transcription factors, which would obviously have DNA um, binding specificity to certain regions of the genome, or they might interact with non-coding RNAs, which again would have specificity by complementary, complementarity. Um, and so we sort of said, okay, if that's the case, 
let's try to figure it out. Um, and we yeah. knew that um, we know that PRC2 is required for central nervous system development. Mm -hmm. So if you make um, using like Crelox P technology, because all of the, if you delete any of the core subunits of PRC2, so those are protein called CZ12, EED, um, or EZH2. Um, mm -hmm. If you delete any of the three of those in embryonic stem cells, they, they'll pretty much die off. They can't really do anything. They won't differentiate at all. Um, mm -hmm. And so people have used Crelox technology to say, okay, if we specifically delete it in the central nervous system and let the mouse, you know, make a make something of a brain, what happens then? <laughs> and it turns out that if you antagonize any of those, you still get, you have these very specific defects in the central nervous system. Um, and so we thought that, you know, well, it must be really important for that. And so can we figure out what it's maybe interacting with in the central nervous system that may be helping it um, either regulate where it goes around the genome or maybe regulate its function as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, um, I probably should have mentioned this as well at the start. Could you explain what is polychrome repetitive complex? So I know we have quite a few people who listen who don't really study much genomics but they enjoy listening anyway could you just explain what um prc2 is yeah so prc2 is is what we call an epigenetic modifier um and so it is a complex that's composed of um as i mentioned three really uh, it depends on who you ask i'm gonna say three somebody else is gonna listen <laughs> and tell me i'm completely wrong uh three core subunits um and then it has accessory proteins um, that help regulate, you know, its uh, function and functionality of, of the complex. Um, and so it is responsible for catalyzing the methylation of lysine 27 on histone H3. Um, and it does it um, with, you know, decrease it with efficacy from, you know, putting on um, three methyl groups, two methyl groups, one. Um, and really what its, what its function is, 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 as I mentioned, to repress gene transcription. So as you add, um, methyl groups and once you hit the, the trimethylation state um, you have a nucleosome that's, that's trimethylated and then that in you know the canonical sense has recruited um, polycom repressive complex one uh, which is another really closely related um, complex um, that goes on to uh, perform another epigenetic modification uh, called mm -hmm. and then ubiquitinates a lysine residue on histone h2a mm -hmm. Um, and the combination of those two marks leads to repression of, of gene transcription. So just by blocking RNA polymerase too for being able to get to the DNA. And so you get chromatin compaction um, and you just basically are shutting down, shutting down gene transcription. That's really what we've known about it for years. Um, we now know quite a bit more now that we've, we've discovered that EZH2 can act outside of the complex. There's possibilities that the other subunits can act outside of the complex. We've identified new interactors of the complex over the years. And so I think that in, at some point, maybe possibly in the future, it may be that we won't think of PRC2 as this, only this repressive thing that only does H2K27 trimethylation, and it may have other roles to play in development. That's interesting what you said about um, some of the subunits being able to act outside of the complex. When we say act outside yeah. of the complex, what, what do we mean exactly by that? Um, so I mean that EZH2 has been shown to do, um, so when you think of EZH2 in the, in, the, in the normal sense, we think of it as it is the methyl transferase, so it puts the methyl group on that lysine 27. Mm -hmm. um, and over the years, we've been able to show that it can put methyl groups on other things, um, usually actually outside of histones. And so it can put uh, methyl groups on uh, other proteins. Mm -hmm. um, and we're sort of figuring out exactly what that does to those proteins. And it, it may be that it does the same thing. It may silence that protein, but in some cases it may actually activate that protein. And I think that we're going to start finding more proteins or more things that EZH2 can modify over time. Mm -hmm. um, as, you know, techniques get better and we get better at analyzing data. Um, yeah. So I think that, you know, what happens is we probably have seen this stuff in the past, but nobody really knew exactly what they were looking at. Yeah. Um, or how to analyze the data. And so now that we've developed new techniques, we're starting to see things that we just hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that leads me quite nicely onto my next question, which was going to be, <laughs> so obviously you've done this research in um, neural progenitor cells. What sort of techniques yeah. and methods did you, did you use to actually look at um, PRC2 in embryonic brain development? Yeah, um, and so so the normal sort of if you sort of think of the gold standard technique for looking at epigenetic modifications, mm -hmm. a, a technique called chromatin immunoprecipitation, uh, followed yeah. by deep deep sequencing or chip seq. 
Um, and so in that, you basically, you have your group of cells, you fix your proteins to your uh, DNA, you break open your cells, you sonicate your, your DNA into small fragments, and then you take an antibody to the transcription factor that you're interested in or the histone modification that you're interested in, and you basically pull out the DNA pieces um, where that protein is bound. Um, and that's sort of been what we've used for years. Um, and so when we, when we started this project, that's the technique that we wanted to try. Um, one of the sort of disadvantages with ChIP-seq is that you have to have a large number of cells um, in order to do it. Um, and we didn't want to have to take our cells out of the animals and then put them into plastic because putting, taking them out of the animal, putting them in the plastic, could change their gene expression. It can alter um, a ton of things. And so we wanted to be able to take them straight out of the animal um, and then perform the experiment. And so we turned to a newer variant of that technique called ultra low input native chip seek. Um, and so that allows you to use a much smaller um, number of cells. Um, and then, then, then the only other big difference is that you don't actually fix um, the protein to the chromatin. And so you can really, really profile histone modifications because they're pretty tightly bound to the chromatin because DNA is obviously wrapped around the histone. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't really work well for transcription factors, which obviously at the time we had discovered this transcription factor and we wanted to know where it bound. And so we were like, okay, well, we don't really know what we're going to do now. Um, and luckily for us, um, the Hennikoff lab up at Fred Hutch, um, Steve Hennikoff is like an expert in all things chromatin. Um, and so they had developed this new method called cut and run. Um, which again is, is sort of using native protein, but then this time yeah, one of the- I feel one like of the I've heard about, was, I feel like I've heard yeah. a couple of people speaking about this, yeah. Yeah, and so cut and run is, it's basically almost the exact same thing uh, with, with one slight variation. So instead of breaking up the DNA and then pulling the pieces you want, you have a micrococcal nuclease that's bound to a uh, protein A fragment. And so what you do is you have your cells, you put your antibody on, your antibody goes and it binds where it's gonna go bind on the, to protein on the DNA. And then the, the protein A will go bind to the antibody and then the micrococcal nuclease will basically just chew up the DNA around it. But the piece where the antibody is, is gonna be protected um, just by steric hindrance. And so then you isolate those fragments of DNA and then you sequence them. Um, and so it's really similar to ChIP-seq except instead of pulling the DNA, you're basically protecting the piece that you want. Uh, but you get the same, you get basically you're getting the exact same data out. Um, and you can use both and sort of compare data back and forth really easily, which is what we did in our paper. So we use um, ultra low native uh, for the histone modifications, and then we use cut and run for YBX1, and then we went back and redid um, cut and run for the histone modifications and compared the two. Um, and the data is almost exactly the same. Um, and so the same places where we see H3K27 by ChIP-seq, mm -hmm. we see it by cut and run. And so it's a really, really cool technique. Um, and you can cut down the cell number significantly from ChIP-seq. Um, and so I think a lot of people are probably going to be switching over to that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Hennikoff lab sort of said, you know, we're not done yet. Micrococcanucleases are great, but <laughs> we can do better. Mm -hmm. um, and so now they've come up with a new a newer technique called cut and tag. Um, and this one, it's the same protocol as cut and run. It's the, with the exception of the micrococcanuclease is now a TN5 transposase. And so... Um, it actually just shortens the protocol because now the TN5 basically barcodes the ends of the DNA where it, where it does the transposition reaction. Um, and so you skip a step of DNA, you, you skip a little bit of a few steps and now you have a barcode there. So you can just run a PCR right across your barcode. So it shortens the protocol significantly. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been working on techniques to actually get cut and tag into a single cell. And so they just published a paper earlier. This, I think it was actually like maybe two weeks ago um, in Nature Biotechnology. Um, where they show that you can actually do single cell cut and tag uh, okay. profiling of, of complex tissues. And you can actually identify, so if you take like whole blood and isolate the cells and you do the single cell, single cell cut and tag, you can actually identify um, the different cell types that are in there. So B cells, T cells, NK cells, mm -hmm. monocytes, just by their, just by where H3K27 trimethylation is, is found. Uh, which wow, I think that's will so be cool. Super, nice. Yeah, which yeah. I think will be super helpful for people. Yeah, that is really cool. I, I literally, I, I admire people who like make these techniques like so much. Like, I just think it's so, I just techniques think it's so cool. Techniques are going to become so commonplace in yeah. however many years time, they're just going to be a, a standard procedure, but actually mm -hmm. establishing them in the first place is... What a difficult process it must yeah. be, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that is really not my area it. of expertise. I'm super happy that 
people like Steve <laughs> and, and the postdocs in his lab and the grad students that have really pioneered these techniques are there because yeah, I can I can follow a protocol, but yeah. I am not here to, to be like, oh yeah, if we add a little bit more calcium, then the reaction runs 10 times. I'm not, that's not my area of expertise at all. Yeah. No, I feel like um, I feel like perhaps Ellie, me and me and you have had this discussion though on the podcast before, um, like sort of a similar discussion, and we were saying like, I feel like we all look at you know people in our fields who do sort of different things, and we're like, oh my god, I could never be that person, I could never yeah. do that. But I feel like it's yeah. worth remembering that everyone plays their part, everyone has their role, you know, and everyone will exactly. look at you in the same way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've actually I've met so I met before and he's like oh I couldn't do what you do and I'm like well, yes you could first off you're a vegan. <laughs> Just stop it and he's like no he's like I this is my like I like to I'm you know I'm making the technique for really doing this stuff and he's mm-hmm. like you know you're doing the biology and so that's that's mm-hmm. a whole different thing and he's like and you know about tumor types that I've probably never even heard of and I'm like yeah okay <laughs> yeah I feel like you always have your more methods driven people and then your biology driven yeah. people in my lab as well um absolutely there's like two of two to two people who really love you know like the method section and the methods part of things and then um me and another person we really love the biology stuff but I feel like as a lab it is quite a nice compliment like we kind of compliment each other quite well (laughs) Um, Mm. so you mentioned um again quite briefly this uh YBX1 gene so um in your paper you sort of explain how YBX1 um sort of fine tunes polychrome repressive complex to activities during embryonic yeah. brain development so can you tell us a little bit about ybx1 um what what is its role and what does it do yeah um so ybx1 um is a dna rna binding protein um so for a long time it was always thought that you know it was this rna binding protein um that in the cytoplasm binds rnas and it helps them um it helps them get translated um, so it can shuttle them to stress granules under stress conditions, but it can also help uh, stabilize them for the ribosome to actually uh, translate. Um, but there's also been some evidence that YBX1 can enter the nucleus. How exactly it does that is pretty debatable. Um, it has a nuclear localization signal, so theoretically it should be able to go in by itself. Um, but there have been reports that it can't do that. But there are different things that help it transport, whether that be an RNA or another protein that it interacts with. Um, and we decided to sort of avoid that. We know that it's, it was in the nucleus in neural progenitor cells. And so we said, okay, it doesn't really matter how it got there. We're just gonna, we're just gonna pretend like it's, it's there. So that's all that matters to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then um, where it bound in the genome was sort of sort of a big question. And so we identified it in, a, in an IP mass spec screen. And so what we did was we took human embryonic stem cells and human neural progenitors and immunoprecipitated uh, Jared 2 uh, which is one of the um, non-core subunits of PRC2 that was actually, I want I'm going to say this, it was discovered by my boss when she was a postdoc, um, but there were five papers that came out sort of back to back to back um, okay. that all identified Jared 2 as this new interactor of the polycom complex. Um, right. And that was, I think her paper came out in 2009 and 12. Um, when she was a postdoc and then so when so we decided to say okay maybe we haven't found these other interactors because they may more strongly interact with the non the sort of the non-core subunits and so we ip jared to um and when you do that you find all of the you know the, the core subunits of prc2 so we knew we were sort of going down the right pathway uh you can pull out a couple of histone proteins so yep okay cool we got we're you know we're down the right path what else is coming out with it um, and so we ended up finding uh, a lot of spectral counts and reads for this uh, YBX1 protein, uh, which had never been, sh- which hadn't at the time been shown to interact uh, with PRC2. And so we got really interested in it because um, mice with deletions of YBX1 are embryonic lethal, um, but they have um, at about a uh, maybe 50 to 60% penetrance that have been recorded in my paper, we actually were able to shift that penetrance up to about 80% um, have um, Exencephaly, and so they have uh, their brains are basically growing outside of their the skull. Um, and when I joined the lab, you know, we we had they had the first postdoc in the lab had identified YBX1. The papers on YBX1 uh, deletion in mice had already been published, and I sort of came in and I said, "Huh, I wonder why they have exencephaly. Like, is it is it because the cells are growing too fast in the brain, 
um, or, or maybe the cells of the skull growing too slow. And the two papers that have been published with the mouse originally said, oh yeah, we think it's because the cells outside of the brain, the cells of the skull are growing too slow. Um, and I just really wanted to take a look at um, the cells in the actual brain and see if we could see any effect. Um, and it turns out that we do. And so when you lose YBX1, neural progenitor cells actually grow way faster than they're supposed to. So there's this hyperproliferation um, effect of, of loss of YBX1. And so um, they're, they're, when the cells are proliferating so fast because they're, they're going so fast to make other stem cells, they actually can't differentiate very well. So they don't differentiate into neurons. And so there's a, a lack of neurons as well, um, which theoretically wouldn't matter because it's not like the embryos are gonna survive. Um, and so the fact that they have less neurons is not a huge deal, but that's sort of what we ended up showing as, as sort of the phenotype. Um, and then we went back to sort of look at, well, is this, you know, YBX1 specific and does it have something to do with its RNA binding protein or does it have anything to do with KRC2? Um, it turns out it does. And so if you have a YBX1 knockout and you antagonize PRC2 um, either by using um, an inhibitor of EVH2 or um, deleting EED specifically in, ner in the uh, neural stem cells, uh, you can actually reverse the effect. So now those knockout, YBX1 knockout cells can actually differentiate into neurons pretty readily. Wow. Sorry, I just feel like I'm I'm digesting that a little bit. That's really interesting. So Yeah, that was a really long-winded explanation. No, 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 no it wasn't. It wasn't. Sorry, it was really good. Um mm -hmm. so you said that these um these embryos aren't viable. So it doesn't matter mm -hmm. about their um lack of neural cells. Theoretically. Theoretically, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But in a real life setting are you are we talking in a clinical setting about you know in embryos that are viable but that are still showing some of this phenotype yeah so that's an interesting question it was something that i sort of thought about when we first started working on this was well this is great but what about humans well, yeah it turns out that we've never seen uh, to my knowledge again somebody's probably gonna be like you aren't reading the right papers um, to my knowledge, there is not a single human being on the planet that has a, a, a germline loss of function of YBX1. Okay. Um, so it seems like it's, okay. it's really, really important up front. And we have some evidence. So we, um, so we had identified, like I said, we identified um, YBX1 and PRC2 interaction in human embryonic stem cells and neural progenitors. Yeah. And so we went back to try to make a deletion in embryonic stem cells. And I will tell you guys that I spent, we spent a lot of time trying to make it. Um, we're pretty good at doing at making CRISPR knockouts. We've done, by the time I joined the lab, they had already made like 17 different lines. And I wow. made like three when I was in the lab. Okay. Um, but mm -hmm. we could never make one and try as we might. And we've got a great uh, core facility here. Um, but we went to them and they were like, okay, well, we'll help you. And they were like, you can't make it either. Something is like very clearly wrong here. Wow, um, really? And then, yeah, and so we couldn't really mm. figure it out. So we sort of just gave up on it. I was like, I don't have time for this. I've got to, you know, publish a paper. And so <laughs> maybe like two or three years into my postdoc, um, the DCAS9 system came out. And so that's the dead version of Cas9 that's linked mm -hmm. to um, an inhibitor. So in this particular instance, it's linked to a crab, uh, crab uh, fusion. And so what that does is you can basically place the dead Cas9 right at the promoter or near the transcription starts out of a, of a gene. And it yep. basically antagonizes gene expression. So you can decrease the gene expression um, and because it's doxycycline inducible in these cells, you can sort of titrate how much of the protein is, is going, how much of the gene is being turned off by how much doxycycline you add. Um, and another postdoc in the lab sort of came in and said, oh, I want to try that. And so tried it. And what we ended up showing was that if you titrate too much doxycycline, you get the level of YBX1 too low, the cells just terminally differentiate. And so we think that there's a possibility that in humans, if there is ever a YBX1 total deletion germline that those embryos are, are just basically not viable and they're probably not viable just after implantation so right so very very early on in development mm. so we just never we've never seen anybody yep. with the germline yep. deletion so potentially the lack of um the lack of information you know you, the fact that you haven't ever seen this in humans could just potentially be the fact that the embryos aren't surviving long enough to ever be detected. Exactly. And so what we're doing, so what, yeah, so what they're doing now is they're saying, okay, we want to know if we see the same phenotype in the brain. So you can 
take those same cells that have the DCAS9, don't put the doxycycline on, push them from embryonic stem cells to neural progenitor, and then add the doxycycline, and then remove the YBX1 and say, okay, now what's the phenotype of these stem cells? Um, and so I think that's, that's something I think they're working on in the lab right now. That's that so sounds really cool. I bet that'll yeah, be that yeah, that'll be really interesting to see. Um, yeah, it'll be what yeah. results come from it'll, that. Absolutely, it'll be really interesting to see if we, well, you know, what I published is is it mouse specific or is it mammalian specific? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and it's YBX1 knockouts and deletions have been seen in other tissues. So there's been papers in uh, zebrafish that have shown that it's required for. Oh God, I don't want to say this wrong. I believe it's um, maternal. Uh, RNA transport and um, and zebrafish and so it has a it's it's got a wide and vast majority of roles so we published our paper and so while we were doing it another paper had come out in um, epidermal progenitors um, and they showed the opposite phenotype so they said you know loss of YBX1 leads to decreased proliferation of epidermal progenitors um, and they showed that it was specifically due to YBX1's role as an RNA binding protein so there was misregulation of mm-hmm. which um, RNAs were being translated because YBX1 wasn't there to stabilize them. Um, and so we talked to that author and they were like, yeah, we don't really see, you know, nuclear YBX1. And so there may be, you know, different cell types depending on what the signals are. So we know that there are different kinases that can phosphorylate YBX1 and those help push it to the nucleus. And so it may just depend on what tissue type you're talking about, what morphogens are present in the yeah. sort of surrounding environment that affect how much YBX1 you see in the nucleus. And was that in mouse as well? Could you? That was in mouse as well. Yeah, actually, using, oh, okay. yeah, using the exact same using the exact same mouse we had. Hmm, that's that's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, I had a question just about something you said a minute ago. You mentioned about how you yeah. couldn't make a CRISPR knockout for this gene. Yeah. Why was that? Like, do you know why that was? Yeah. So we think it's just because every so when we do CRISPR knockouts, we tend to do single cells. So we take okay. a, a plate of cells, throw. Um, the CRISPR for the guide and the Cas9 at it. Um, and the Cas9 is usually, we have a GFP version and then we sort single cells with GFP. And I think what ends up happening is that the cells that probably actually get the CRISPR um, and it actually cuts, they just don't ever grow up. So we never see a right. colony. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can, I think we can get the cut. I don't think deleting it is, is the problem because even when we leave it sort of in its, in its full, in the full plate and screen it, we can get mosaic colonies. So there are colonies in there that show the deletion. Um, I just think that those cells are grow either so slowly that we end up throwing them out because we're not because we don't wait long enough, or they don't actually grow at all, and we'll never be mm-hmm. able to, to sort of make a colony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it sounds really interesting. Sounds like a really interesting gene. Do you know like um, what sort of pathways or genes YBX1 actually acts on? Yeah. So it. RNA targets are sort of vast. And I think it's, again, it's really dependent on what cell type you're talking about. Um, yeah. And so we haven't really done a ton of work looking at what RNA is. Um, it binds in the central nervous system, which is something that I'm going to be exploring in the future um, mm-hmm. and whether or not those change during development. So one of the, one of the things I've always really been interested in is, you know, for RNA binding proteins, does it bind a certain set of proteins when you're talking about a stem cell? And then when you move to yeah. a differentiated cell, does it alter what proteins it binds? And we know that that does that for other RNA binding proteins. Um, so stands to reason it would do the same thing for YBX1, uh, but we don't know what mm-hmm. those are. Um, and then at the same time, now that we know about this interaction um, on the DNA with PRC2, does that get altered during differentiation? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, the, and then the larger question is what what goes wrong in cancer? So YBX1 um, overexpression is seen in cancers of I would venture to guess just about every tissue in the body um you'll see ybx1 excuse me in some <laughs> cancer in some uh tumor of of that tissue ybx1 overexpression is seen and so what is it what is it doing there was it mm-hmm. you know is it the rna binding protein part was it the dna binding protein part is it something we've never even seen before um and then what's regulating it so we know the inputs above ybx1 are, are huge and so it has a couple of phosphorylation sites Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been papers that show like AKT can phosphorylate it, the mTOR pathway, uh, risk kinase, uh, PDK1, CK2, and that's just like <laughs> the ones that I can think of off the top yeah. of my head. <laughs> yeah. um, and there is there are papers that literally have, and I mean, when I look at this, sometimes I'm like, 
oh, I picked the wrong protein to study because they're like, <laughs> oh, here's 15 different kinases. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I've made, I've made a very not great mistake here. Um, but a lot of those kinases, obviously, if you say like the brain, some of those kinases aren't even expressed. And so I was like, oh, I can knock off half of these because they're not even there or they're not activated or they're not functional. Um, and so we think that, so we're trying to, to understand which kinases regulate if they do, which ones regulate YB1 sort of during development, which ones regulated during um, medulloblastoma initiation and progression. And then if we can figure that out, um, we may be able to better target, sort of sort of run an end around on YBX1 and target it that way. Um, mm -hmm. So we've known about YBX1 for years. Um, there are, there's not a single drug that is a direct antagonist of YBX1 that's available clinically right now. Um, and part of that has to do with the fact that it has normal functions and normal cells. So it's sort yeah. of like, and it, it's sort of like NF-kappa B, right? Like we can't antagonize NF-kappa B because we need it for, like our, our immune cells need it to fight off infections. Mm -hmm. So we can't really say like, here's an NF-kappa B inhibitor, take it forever. No, nope, that's going to be problematic. <laughs> yeah. um, and we think that's the same thing with YBX1. And so if we can either figure out what in, tu in certain tumors, what's upstream of it or what's downstream of it, then we can target those things. Um, it's sort mm -hmm. of surrogate for going after YBX1. Mm -hmm. What about like, so obviously like um, epigenetic changes in this yeah. gene is what potentially leads to the cancer. What about epigenetic, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I don't want to say like, sort of like, is there any way you could actually directly change the epigenetic modifications? Yeah, so we could do sense? that. So we were able <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. You know, that's a great question. So, so in so in my paper, what we showed was that loss of YBX1 leads to this um, hyper uh, activation of the polycomb complex. So you get way more K27 trimethylation than you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. And so let's say the exact opposite happened in a tumor. You have a ton of YBX1, and now you don't have enough K27 trimethylation. Um, so you can we can boost that. There are possible ways to boost that, right? Like if yeah. we get it back to normal levels, and would that actually cure? Would that actually fix the tumor? The easiest sort of way to do that, I think, in my head, and, and again, maybe somebody will tell me I'm wrong, would be so if you don't have, for the most part, so if you don't have methylation on K27, you have acetylation, and acetylation is an activating mark. Um, mm -hmm. And so instead of trying to boost the levels of K27 trimethyl, could we just antagonize the levels of K27 acetyl? And there are right. drugs that can do that. And so mm -hmm. the thought would be if we can prove that that's what's happening in the tumor, we could use that. We could use those drugs. And maybe, and it may not be that simple. It may be that YBX1 yeah. interacts with other epigenetic modifiers. And we we know that at least. So my paper showed PRC2. Um, and luckily for me, we were sort of like, oh, we're going to publish this paper, and nobody's going to believe us. Um, <laughs> when we right when we were getting ready to submit another paper that was looking for something completely different, had done an EDH2 um, immunoprecipitation, and at like the bottom of their list of proteins that they pulled out with YBX1. And we were like, nope, somebody else saw it. It's not, we didn't make it up. Like we promised you it's real. Uh, and so one of the things, one of the things that, so we know that it interacts with that. YBX1 has also been shown to interact with P300 um, and CBP, which are, um, which catalyze K27 acetyl. So there's a possibility that it does, it may regulate which modification is probably going on K27, but it may also interact with other proteins. And so, we have to also figure out what the interactome um, of YBX1 is in particular tissues. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I was going to say, like, um, in terms of the future, what are what are kind of the next steps? The the most immediate next steps. We've spoken a lot about yeah. you know the long term future. Kind of, can you tell us about a little bit about what you're going to be doing now? Yeah, and so for me, so there's like the, there's the super short-term future, which is me finishing these few papers that I'm doing in the second postdoc. Yeah. Um, that are, that I'm going to like finish and then I'm going to walk away from rhabdomyosarcoma sarcoma for probably a while. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the future. Um, and then sort of on the, on the YBX1 side, one of the big things that I've been really interested in is understanding if um, the regulation of PRC2 um, and nervous system development isn't, is a fully, is only in the embryonic, is only an embryonic development. So if we move to postnatal development, do we see the same feature? And again, the brain is a great place to do that because the brain for the most, the cortex of your brain is basically fully developed by the time you're born. There's, you know, you still have some connections that need to be made, but the, but the development of the brain is sort of done. The cerebellum, however, um, 
actually doesn't really even start its, its full scale proliferation um, until after you're born. So in postnatal life. And so in mice, that's within the first like two weeks you have um, a really rapid proliferation and then a, a lot of differentiation. And then you're sort of, you have, you know, the full cerebellum in humans that time scale's obviously shifted um, a little bit. And so we know that YBX1 is expressed in the developing cerebellum um, in the embryonic stage and in the in the early postnatal stage. And so what is it doing there? Is it the same function it has in the embryo? Um, and is it, you know, the same PRC2 interaction? Is it P300? Is it RNA? Um, and so that's, that's sort of the immediate next goal for me is doing that. And then we also have some experiments going right now um, mm -hmm. with YBX1 and medulloblastoma. And so um, if we, CRISPR it what happens to the tumor cells we would hope that it would it would decrease their proliferation and make the tumors grow slower hopefully it does not turn out the same way that antagonizing EZH2 does and the tumors grow faster because that would be super problematic for my future mm -hmm. um, and then is that the same across all subtypes of medulloblastoma um, is it specific to one or two subtypes where YBX1 uh, is, is particularly regulated or regulates growth um, and then how to, how is it doing that? Is it the same? Is it the same sort of pathway? Is it new stuff? Um, and then if we can sort of figure out if it's the same things, can we actually treat kids? Because if it was the exact same things that are required for development, and a kid comes in with a tumor during that developmental window where you need YBX1, we may not we may not be able to antagonize it very well. So is it a good yeah. target? Um, is the mm -hmm. other thing that we have to discover. And then if it's not, what other targets are there? And that's and that's sort of the you know the other part of the lab that's going to be starting up hopefully is, is starting to find new targets that we can sort of run these same sort of uh, assays and tests on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sounds so interesting. I can't wait yeah. to um, to hear more about your research and see, yeah, you know, what odd. you managed to find. It sounds so cool. Yeah. Definitely. We'll have hopefully, to get you, have to get you back success. in the future. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. 100%. Absolutely. Um, so do you, do you plan to stay at um, stay where you are now, or are you moving um, to a, no, another institute? Or I am moving to another institute, so I'm actually on the academic job market right now. Oh. Um, so I'm applying and and doing interviews and doing. It's very very busy. It is. Um, yeah. I was. I will say I was very unprepared for what was going to happen when I hit the academic job market. I was like, <laughs> oh, it's it's the same talk. All you're doing, you're meeting people. It's fine. It won't be a big deal. It is like eight yeah. hours of meetings a day, and especially not being able to travel because of the pandemic. It's eight yeah. hours of meeting in front of my computer, um, yeah, yeah. And, which it's is tough. tiring in a way that I didn't think it would be. And then because I'm not traveling, I'm like, oh well, I should still be going to lab. Yeah, because sorry, I'm here yeah. so I'm like half doing work half trying to do my interviews writing talks like we still had papers to do I was writing I, I was finishing up a grant um and so it's just it's been a really busy couple of months but I think mm. things are things are sort of moving in the right direction um yeah oh, uh, good. In, terms of, in terms of academics yeah well, that makes us appreciate you coming to talk to us even yeah, more. Yeah, thank you Absol so much. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, no, it's been so fun. It's been really nice to learn um, a little bit about cancer epigenetics because, like I said, I don't think either of us knew no, much about it. Absolutely fascinating. So just, um, I mean, at the end of every episode, if you've, I think everyone's used to this by now. We always like to say <laughs> if anyone else is out there thinking this is so fascinating and they'd like to get in touch with you, um how how best is it for people to go about asking you questions would you prefer twitter yeah. email or you know i, I want to say twitter is good only because i'm trying to force myself to use my twitter <laughs> um and it is it's one of those things where i'm like i have to learn how to actually use twitter and talk to people yeah and, yeah and then like pretend like i have followers that i don't know why you're following me on twitter because i tweet <laughs> nonsense <laughs> uh, it's a lot of, it's a lot of pictures I can relate stuff, to that yeah. so much yeah yeah it's just me it's me talking trash to my friends that I went to grad school <laughs> with because they're like they're just starting some of them are just starting their postdocs because they're a couple years behind me and going through like f32 rejections or, or getting weird comments back on papers and I'm like oh yeah let me yeah I've been there I know what that's like but like it's gonna be fine so I feel like I can make fun of you about this <laughs> um, and you're not gonna get super upset <laughs> Um, but yeah, my Twitter handle, I just had to look it up because I don't even remember what it is. 
Um, it, it is, is Myron underscore yeah. Evans PhD. Yeah. <laughs> Why do I know I literally that? Literally don't. I was like, I don't know that. I'm, I'm glad so you did. I, like, I don't know. I think it's because I, I found you on there because I saw your oh, paper yeah. and I um I looked you up on Twitter because <laughs> I couldn't find Mark, your email. That's he? Yeah, and I would, uh, let's see, I would say, yeah, Twitter's probably the best only because mm-hmm. once I leave, my email will be closed and I, my thing yeah. email will be closed and I won't have access to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Twitter, Twitter's a good place. I'm trying to have anything else. Like, oh, you can find me on LinkedIn too. It's just not yeah. English, my name. Amazing. Um, we'll link uh, those in our episode description then as yeah, well as linking your paper. Yeah. Um, Perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really great to talk to you today yeah Absolutely. thank you so this much I appreciate you. it and, yeah and thank you guys for doing this I think this is like the coolest idea anybody's <laughs> done in grad school to just do a postdoc I'm like I'm interested in this I'm going to do a postdoc and be like I'm going to have somebody come talk to me about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh thank you appreciate that Absolutely. <laughs> all right well yeah thank you again and best of luck in your research really excited to see um more from you and yeah make sure you follow him on Twitter so you can see all of his updates and weird tweets to his uh grad school friends <laughs> and we're, we're very fortunate here in the UK it's coming to the end of our Friday but unfortunately I think you've still got the rest of Friday to go haven't you before the week I, I am absolutely on my way to lab right now to go yeah. do some more single cell experiments and oh. like, cr- cry into my laptop so it'll be a great day for me well <laughs> that you've given up your time and we hope that when it comes to the weekend you have a lovely weekend (laughs) oh yeah you too all right thank you thanks so much thank you for joining us for this episode be sure to follow us on twitter at the genomics lab that's got a capital g and a capital l you can actually also find both of us on instagram at a genomics PhD and at PhD underscore Ellie. Finally, be sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform and we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you again for listening. (laughs) 